0: Welcome back to the Present Process Podcast, where we talk about plays from playwrights that you may or may not have heard of, and illuminate the process of writing. I'm your host, Daniel, and this week we're talking to Charlie O'Leary about his play, Effective. As always, if you have a new Play Exchange profile, I highly recommend you go and give the play a read before listening. This episode may contain some strong language and other adult themes, and you can find an in-depth content warning in the description. Thanks for listening. Perfect. All right. So I'm here with Charlie O'Leary and we're here to talk about your play Effective today. And I'm super excited to do that. Uh, But first, I'm just sort of curious. uh, I just want to talk about you for a second, figure out who you are, where you come from, what you do, and uh, just how you would describe yourself.
1: Yeah. um, I'll give you my 30 second life story is how I always start, (laughs) which is not always the most interesting place to start. But We'll start there. Um, so I grew up in Northwestern Pennsylvania in the middle of nowhere. I went to a uh, college in Northern Indiana, which is where I sort of learned about playwriting from my playwriting professor, Anne Garcia Romero. It's uh, also where I met my uh, partner who I'm still with today. So it gave me those two things and, and we're gonna just be <laughs> grateful for that. Um, and uh, after that, I lived in New York for six years. Uh, I was mostly working in play publishing uh, during the days and then uh, was writing plays and, and producing my own work in the evenings. Um, in 2019, I uh, decided to go to grad school. I uh, moved to Iowa City uh, uh, to get my MFA at the Iowa Playwrights Workshop. Uh, I finished there in May, um, and uh, my partner and I decided we liked Iowa City enough. We wanted to stick around for another year or two, um, and I'm actually working in uh, administration with the College of Education uh, right now as my, as my day job uh, while I continue to write and send out my plays. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess like who I am is a playwright, uh, a, a sometimes lyricist. I came into playwriting through musical theater. And so I always <laughs> have, I, I still love musical theater. I just wrote the book to a musical that had a, a small production in New York, uh, this past month. But, um, I, uh, yeah, I'm a playwright, lyricist and, uh, and just theater lover maker person, uh, who lives in Iowa city. Of all
0: places. <laughs> I mean, it's, I, knew some people that came from Iowa and they say that the like the theater scene in Iowa is actually better than you would expect it to be so it's
1: really great for a city this size it's actually it's really fantastic um there's a, a great live performance scene in general there's like a, a really thriving like stand-up comedy scene uh surprisingly just all it's uh yeah no it, it has a surprisingly vibe especially um again compared to like where I come from I, I sort of I'm used to hearing small town and, and meaning a very particular kind of thing and and uh, Iowa City is a nice little oasis in the, in the midst of a lot of small towns that were more what I was familiar with. Um, which is no uh anyway,
0: yeah, and I'm sort of curious you talked about you came from musicals, uh, but I'm sort of curious right now, like when you're working with plays, what types of plays do you typically work with?
1: I mean, as a as a playwright, I feel like um especially when I'm writing non-musical plays, uh, I, I think, I used to say that I didn't write comedies. I sort of was surprised. We had a reading of my very first play ever and um, everyone was sort of laughing during it. And I was like, I thought I wrote a drama. And uh, (laughs) it just turns out it was sort of like humor is just embedded in in how I write. So I I now sort of lead with, I I do write comedy, um, but uh, I tend to write plays that are uh, naturalistic, uh, scene by scene, but that have pops of theatricality uh, uh, are really interesting to me. I like sort of uh, you know, really wild structural twists or sort of um uh a peculiar like formal like conceit for a play I really enjoy. Um I enjoy, you know, fast-paced dialogue and awkward humor. Um and I uh I enjoy putting bad behavior on stage because I think it uh it allows me to purge something for one. I think that just like I can't have all these like thoughts running around my brain and just not like let them out somewhere. Um But also I, I think it allows me to like understand better. It's like a thought experiment where I get to see the life I didn't want to live. Sometimes is how I look at my plays. I also tend to be drawn to pretty dark work. um, And uh, my, my plays tend to be um, are often gruesome sometimes.
0: Uh, I had a moment recently where I was like, yeah, I think I like a lot of different stuff. And then someone was asking for play suggestions for production. And I, Kept sending them plays, and I was like, oh, all these are really dark. I think (laughs) it's like moments like that where you learn interesting things about yourself. No, but I appreciate what you said about uh, like people acting badly on stage, that sort of thing, Um, because I often feel like people go we go to the theater not to see people act well, but to act in the ways that we wish we could sometimes. Mm -hmm. So it's like the things that we wish we could do that always aren't the right thing. um, Yeah and like and like you said you're sort of exercising that from your body and at the same time we're all kind of collectively coming together to go ah here's a lesson what not to do sometimes
1: which is i love that you're connecting it to wishing too because it is like it is both wish fulfillment and then it, and then it is the realization <laughs> that the fantasy if the fantasy were real would be a nightmare <laughs> um and uh that is yeah i think just like really exciting to me um and I'm, I'm realizing now I'm like wishing is I, we just watched the end of the woods, like the Disney movie from 2014 last night, my partner and I, cause we had been listening to the soundtrack of the Broadway revival. Yeah. I mean, the movie is, is not a good adaptation of the, the play, but I just, it definitely had me thinking again about like, oh, uh, desire is uh desire and wishing and wish fulfillment is such an important part of like our, like lives as, as human beings, but also it's such an important part of like what we're, playing with a very dangerous element potentially of theater and storytelling. Well,
0: right, um, because like it's those moments when we let the wishing get out of hand on our side that make for the most conflict. And then that's right where we want the theater to be. Because if you just had a mundane uh people going around being reasonable on stage, it wouldn't be right. Very good. I, don't, no would I go wouldn't it, it would not
1: be compelling. I would not I mean <laughs> I yeah I my um playwriting professor in undergrad was uh really big into Maria Irene Forness. It was all writing for the subconscious and, uh, you know, sort of writing before you understand what you're writing, which I still subscribe to today. And that is sort of, uh, you know, uh, the way I like to approach writing. Uh, but she would also just sometimes ask, like, what is the action of this scene? Like, what are we actually watching? Um, and I, that's sometimes a useful question to ask because, um, you know, uh, we actually do want to watch something happen on stage, and usually that thing is conflict.
0: Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll get into that more as we get into talking about the play, but um, yeah, I really feel that, and I think sometimes it can be, sometimes that's like what I'll send back to a playwright if I'm looking at a script for them is I go, what like, what are they doing in the scene? Yeah, you have lots mm-hmm. of interesting dialogue, but it's like, what what's actually like happening right now? And then it's like, oh, I need something like right, they need to be doing something at the very least, and then it can come from there. Talking about Effective, um, which uh, I love this play. It was it was really, it was like on the short, short, short list when we were looking at production. Um, and honestly, I'll probably keep it on my shelf for a while in case I ever want to do it because I really, I think it speaks to a lot of things that we're dealing with right now. I think it speaks to uh, like, uh, I think in, uh, your pre-interview responses—you were talking about millennials, but even for um, people younger than that, it really—it's just kind of like the work environment we're in right now. Um, but so you have this uh, group of people who are working at a music publishing uh, company who are making music for like high schools and stuff like that, and they're just <laughs> butting up against the ineptitudes of the managerial forces in their life. Uh, and so, what was sort of a personal or global event that might have inspired you to? take on this topic
1: yeah i mean i uh like i uh i think i am a person who i don't think any of us are built to work office jobs from nine to five uh and i certainly i know i speaking for myself i'm it is not something that i think that i you know uh am naturally inclined towards and i had been working in offices at that point for five years you know uh out of school just having been in you know eight to five positions and um there was uh, something that had happened at like several companies in a row that I had been at, um, where sort of a new, a new management, sort of a new person would come in and take over. And, um, and then there was this whole new slew of ideas uh, that would sort of uh, either be like out of line with the vision of the company or what the company actually does, or actively work against what the company is, is trying to do and what the purported goals of even the new, you know, the new management or new leadership is. And uh, I I just felt like I witnessed over and over these like strange wars between people who had been at a place and were actively trying to keep the ship afloat and um, people who were sort of swooping in attempting to make something like dazzling happen uh, so that they could claim credit for it. And that these were like two really bizarre forces to witness as somebody who like frankly was like didn't really, I was just there to like collect a paycheck. I just like needed to like make a living and like was, uh, but you can't help but be caught in this like, in this battle that is unfolding. Um, And so I was uh, in 2018, like very, very depressed. I was producing the like biggest run of a show that I had ever done, uh, which was uh, at the People's Improv Theater. It was a a very sort of wackadoodle satire um, that like was very meta theatrical and not, it didn't feel like my serious writing, although now I look back on it and realize it totally was. Um, But I was just like in the height of depression and the height of like having been through several of these jobs where I had to jump ship, leave a company because because I felt like the environment was becoming so toxic and untenable. Um, And uh, it just sort of felt like that was going to be my life forever. It was like a spiral of jobs uh, that were like, uh, you know, uh, at places run by people i didn't respect or think were, you know, good at what they were doing and um oh this is going to be public you know what it's okay i haven't named any of these places i'll make my linkedin <laughs> private it's fine um and and it's also if if you think i'm talking about you it's not it's not that company it's the other it's the other companies i worked at i think that like i had just reached such a point of frustration and despair we were also like halfway through the trump presidency like I I feel like, you know, uh, thinking about late stage capitalism was starting to like actually like come into the popular like lexicon and just like uh, was something that people were actively starting to discuss in conversation with like their day to day lives. I'm realizing now I feel like (laughs) the thing that most feels like it inspired the play, even though it clearly did not, was Elon Musk taking over Twitter, which is (laughs) happening now um, and, and feels like exactly what I witnessed. Uh, but in much smaller scale at at so many like corporate offices when I lived in New York. So the play really just came from a place of fury. I think just a lot of anger. <laughs> well,
0: I think I was talking to another playwright and we were talking about how she writes when she's pissed off about something, and that's I feel like that is a great. Like a great place to start because I think if you if you're upset about something, it gives you enough drive to like keep writing those pages as you're going forward. Whereas opposed to like if you're really like excited about spreading the word about something, it's maybe sometimes it can peter out. But who knows? I mean, maybe maybe it's just because I'm more inclined to be upset about something myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think I re- I really resonate with that. Uh, so right, so you have this, and I think I I appreciate what you said where it's like. Uh, the it's a it's sort of about it's or it's inspired by elon musk taking over twitter where i think it like your play aged really well because yeah you wrote it in 2018 but then we got or it was it was starting in 2018 um and then uh we got covid and we got people finally assessing like their work-life balance and they're going is this really worth it to like do this and inflict this emotional (laughs) damage on myself day to day And I think that's kind of one of the core questions of the play is like, is it worth it for these characters? And it's like, sometimes like you have characters who are saying, this is what I need. This is my next step. This is what I, this is what I, all I have basically. Yeah. Or there are people who are trying to get a leg up but then they can't and it's difficult. So I think you like every character sort of hits a different facet of that reality in our current work experience.
1: Yeah. Oh, and that, that I mean, the question of is it worth it? As you said, that just like chilled me kind of because I feel like the the scary part of the play for me is that like, what is the alternative? Like, the alternative is death. I think that like, <laughs> we either live under capitalism or we die. And like, to live under it might mean hopefully to, to fight against it and to like hope that there's a better version of it and uh, a, a future where we can look back on it uh, look back on it fondly, uh, as, as, uh, you know, uh, a part of our path that we like moved through, uh, in order to get where we needed to be. But like, I also, um, yeah, it's like, uh, the COVID in particular in the way that we've all started assessing, uh, yeah, like, is this worth it? And I think that so many of us are saying no, and then looking like trying to find the alternatives. And I guess maybe it feels actually like there are more alternatives now than there felt to me, mm-hmm. as a you know a twenty six year old writing this play in two thousand eighteen, um, I, I feel like yeah there are maybe the, is it worth it might uh, have a an optimistic answer potentially. I'm realizing, <laughs> but um,
0: well, Ed, yeah. well, I actually have a question about that specifically. Uh, I was wondering if you would describe this play as sort of a cynical take, like on this perspective, because it doesn't it doesn't necessarily end hopeful, like it ends sort of Mm -hmm. messily for the characters. And I think, like, like, I struggled with answering this question for myself. Like, is it a, does it have a cynical outlook on this? Like, is this actually a good way for these characters to go forward or is it? And that's kind of the absurdity of it is like, they have to accidentally kill their manager to move forward.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously, like, these characters are in, like, have really put themselves in a pickle at the end of the play. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like, the final monologue of the play or the final movement of the play is not, like, uh, you know, it, it it's not, like, uproarious or joyful by any stretch. <laughs> and I think the play in general, I would say, is very cynical about the systems of the world we live in. I don't think it's, like, particularly hopeful with regards to, like, um, these, like, businesses or systems or structures, Um, I think it is hopeful for the people within them in that like, at least, I there's like, for me, there's a little, there is a little bit of that like guillotine fighting back moment at the end Mm -hmm. of the play of like, we may be monsters. That is what this system has made of us. And we as monsters can now like bite back or claw back. And that feels very scary to me. Um, But also there is perhaps something hopeful in that. Um, alongside, I guess, just, I think the larger, uh, maybe a sort of the, the, the other way of, of putting it that might be less violent or less rooted in violence, um, for me is, is just thinking about the final lines of the play, um, which are, um, you know, uh, what's your greatest weakness and, uh, the other character responds, I care too much. And I think like that, that hopefully is a punchline earlier in the play that like comes back in, in this slightly different context here. But, um, I, I do think that uh, the idea that we care too much is both a thing that like makes us victims of like late stage capitalism in these kind of environments, and can also give us the power to maybe change those systems. Um, so I, I think that the fact that we care is the only reason that there we would have any like ability to hope um, that there is an alternative. That like th- that you know when we look to leave these kind of like horrible dead end jobs like that there might be an alternative uh, world out there waiting for us or like for us to create. Right, um, and
0: I, I think that's even reflected in the Lily monologue, right, at the end of the play where it's mm. like, I'm excited, like where Lily says, I'm excited for this to be over.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, I'm but, excited for this, yeah.
0: And we can, all, we can all sort of feel that and it's not, I don't think the play ever says, oh, this is changing, right? This Mm-mm. is, it just says, this is sort of the human spirit, right? It is, it's a triumph of the human spirit where it says we're going to move forward in a Mm. way um, and hopefully find a way out of it. But then at the same time, you have that sort of absurdist twist at the end where it's like, Oh, well, this is kind of reflective of the beginning Are we have, we really moved on. And so in that way, I think it, uh, I talked about this with another playwright where I'm like, I don't really know if I like plays that are super cynical, like I like where it's just like at the end, you're like, ah, everything is sort of over. But I think I think yours sort of gets around that, where at the same time it I it identifies and it respects the fact that we still live in this world, but also there's still us, right? Like people mm-hmm. and our ability to move forward. And I really appreciate it that you did both. Thank you. I that means a lot to me. And I it's
1: interesting that you say that or that that, that was even a question that came up as because I had a play that I worked on for I I rewrote more than I've rewritten any other play. I I rewrote like 60 drafts of this play. And like the thing that I finally chipped away at that like the reason the play wasn't working was that like the first drafts were too cynical. Um, They were like deeply cynical towards the characters. I didn't love my characters. I didn't understand them. I didn't care to understand them. And um, that's a really, it turns out that just doesn't, at least for me, I was not able to turn it into a good play. I was not able to turn that into something interesting or compelling to watch. And it was only as soon as I cared about the people and like felt stakes in their, uh, in their lives, even as they like did atrocious things and, you know, uh, and engaged in a, you know, with an atrocious world, like that there needed to be something uh, optimistic or hopeful in, again, not necessarily in the, like the grand scheme of the play, but at least in those characters that we've, that we care about, that we identify with. Yeah, that feels really fundamental to me and i i don't know if i would have said that five years ago so <laughs> that's maybe that's growth too <laughs> well
0: i feel like for me it's like right the the basis of theater as an art form is about social betterment right like you mm-hmm. know people are gather together they're like okay we got a greek theater we got all of our political problems to figure it out and i think that it it hasn't changed much and i still think that's sort of the the mechanics of theater in a way like it's that's the way it's different than film is I think it Mm. I think it does turn the mirror back on us where film is like oh we can just look at someone's life for a while and so I think it's important that it's just not like a play is never completely cynical because otherwise people just leave and they're like well I guess I guess there's nothing we can do like to solve our problems yeah
1: I uh like no problem has ever gotten solved that way I I've been talking to friends recently who are like Going into like aerospace engineering to see if we can like uh you know create uh like is there any way to basically take the air or the uh air travel industry and make it like sustainable and if not like what do we do to just shut it down is sort of like their their (laughs) approach and i was like great i'm glad someone is doing that and has hope that like that is possible because uh i mean the alternative is just to like give up and and party for 30 years and accept that the world is over which Mm -hmm. feels really bleak um I mean because it is
0: when you were when you were looking at your play and you were like you were fine-tuning it you were you were fixing uh problems Mm -hmm. that you might have had with it um was there ever anything in there that you ended up cutting that you really really liked
1: you know uh yes uh so there's a moment in the final monologue and this was this is a uh, a cut that needed to be made um, as all, I mean, you're asking about like, cuts that need to be made, kill your darlings is like about no one like enjoys it, but it's <laughs> you know, it's necessary. Um, uh, so I originally wrote this play for a project called the Brooklyn generator, where you gather a director and a group of actors, and um, you have 30 days to write a play for that specific group of people. And you do a reading of it at the end of the month. And so you have four hours of rehearsal with this like brand new play uh, that goes up in front of an audience and all your, you know, theater, friends come and your playwriting friends come in and, and you just hear this like weird thing happen on a Sunday afternoon. And it's, it's a, a very special process to me. And I, I've done it uh, twice now. And I've been to dozens of those readings uh, over the years. And um, I, I just think it's an incredible process. Um, and one thing about knowing exactly when and where and how a piece is going to be performed uh, is that like, uh, even in a reading setting, I can then uh, do things that are like that remind us that we're in a, an alive moment that is going to disappear. And uh, one of the ways that I did that was in the uh, final monologue of the play, which referenced, you know, uh the day that it was written, which was just a few days before the reading at the time. Um, it also uh dropped my name. Uh, like it it allowed the audience to realize that the character of Lily or the actor playing the character of Lily was now speaking sort of as, not just like as the voice of the playwright, but literally as me, Charlie O'Leary, like a a character, Mm -hmm. the the playwright, and also like a person who has now entered this play. Um, And uh, there was like a weird laugh and like an uncomfortable shift as soon as that happened, uh, because it happened right before the the monologue sort of delved into some really uh, much darker material. Uh, And it came off the tail of like a a story that I knew some people in the audience knew about like my partner and I who met it in college. Um, And, uh, the the thing that I am sad that I had to lose was just the the like moment of actually like your suspicions are confirmed audience like this you're hearing a diary entry now this thing that you thought was a play is is all of a sudden become something different and you're eavesdropping um mm-hmm. and uh and that was I mean it that was a thing that only works if you like came to the play knowing who I am and that I wrote it which you would only do if you were like a friend of mine <laughs> like playwrights aren't like Unless you're Annie Baker, no one goes to your play sort of knowing who you are or caring, frankly. Um, and nor should they. Um, but uh I I uh realized that I had to communicate in other ways that, that uh character was not Lily, but rather the voice of the writer or the voice of someone else. Um and uh and I I found other ways to do that, but none felt as like elegant or as shocking as just like saying my name out loud. Um and uh and I also like I'm sad that like the play doesn't just exist in that on that one day that it was sort of originally meant to be read. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of weird that it exists in a form, like that other actors have played those roles. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and again, not, it's good weird. And it's like, the play has evolved since then. But um, yeah, I, I'm i like, oh, wow. I'm, I guess I'm like, the thing I was sad to cut is like, you know, my experience of the past, of uh, <laughs> you know, of the ephemerality of theater. I was really sad to cut the ephemerality <laughs> of theater.
0: Yeah, but that's it's like yeah, that's the sad part. But it's also like the necessary one. I think like right, if Absolutely. you had that in there, I think if you left it in there for anybody else reading it, who didn't know you, it it's a little bit right, It'd be obnoxious.
1: It might, it might I mean, be a it little... sort of, it was obnoxious. Yeah. like it was obnoxious, even in in for what it was. But um, hopefully, it's slightly less obnoxious.
0: <laughs> what you uh, run the risk of when you do that now is sort of it's a little bit alienating. Mm-hmm. Um, right like if you if you left that in so i think now like that i think that cut gives your play legs which i think is important like if you want it to have legs like some people just write things for that moments like that right and that's Mm -hmm. the kind of theater they do but
1: no but of course i like obviously beyond that i i want the play to like have a life and like i want the play to be seen and i like i you know i think that every writer has to believe that like their writing is worth being heard by at least like a couple dozen other people and like <laughs> you're like just searching for them and just trying to throw it out into the world of them
0: right and even like you're just waiting for someone to connect with your work the way that you connected with some yeah. other play that you read right and it's the just way a- that
1: like I don't know what the constitution means to me made me feel like so deeply seen and like also like like I had grown as a person every time I saw it um like I was like, oh, I don't think that I can do that for as many people as Heidi Shrek did, but like maybe I can do that for like five like random kinksters in the queer community and like, you know, uh, like a, a weird teenager in Minnesota. Yeah, no, I, I think that like wanting to see and be seen is like the reason we all are writing and also consuming stories and all of it.
0: Yeah, and then it's through that. it's It's not that we're solving the problems on stage. It's that by mm-hmm. expressing those problems and then connecting with people about them, it brings them into the dialogue again. And then we can go, okay, now that we're thinking about this again, let's talk about it, right? Like, yeah, and then you process it that way. So it's, it's like whenever you have a problem play or like an activist sort of thing, it's like, right, it, it's cool for the people that agree with it in the audience, but oh. I don't think it really changes that much. If you have a deep, uh, heartfelt uh, play that connects to that problem and then people can talk about it. I find that that's, that inspires at least me to do something more than some, a play that tells me to do something. hundred
1: percent. Well, I, I think that like, I mean, this is a shitty example, but like as a gay man or as a person who has thought a lot about like gay theater, the last like 40 years in, in and around HIV and AIDS, like the normal heart is like an important play. And I saw the revival on Broadway in like 2011 and I wept, but like, It is not, like, Angels in America, I think, like, helps me understand the world and also, like, potentially even the crisis of HIV better than the normal heart, um, because it is, like, doing, like, because it is fundamentally about, like, examining a a human truth and not about, like, conveying a really particular political message for activist uh, ends, which, again, is, like, really important and should be done. And I think the normal heart is, like, I'm glad that that kind of work exists but it does feel like it is um it is uh, it is a form of activism more than a form of theater uh and a, and uh again like i think that i i am very suspicious of that phrase like art is activism i'm like well no activism is activism like go like you know do something and and write an angry letter and and like you know uh call some people um is like probably more productive than like pouring it out into a play and yet i think and yet it's the greek like model that you're talking about like that by sort of providing folks a framework to think about these issues in a human way, like we can actually maybe begin to understand them, and that allows us to like take more thoughtful actions. I don't know, maybe the maybe this is like whole normal heart angels <laughs> in America thing is really stupid and, and can just be cut. But um, I I, I think that like yeah, I, when I think about like what was more important and more needed, I guess at the time it was the normal heart, and when I think about like the reason that. Angels in America is the longstanding play that like we hold with us and that will document that moment in history.
0: You did, originally you did the uh, generator and that's where the play started. And then if I'm understanding correctly, you did another reading that was a digital one.
1: And uh, Sarah was like, you know, basically we both agreed that like in fall of 2020, we were looking at the COVID numbers. The production was supposed to go up in October. We were like, we can't do, there's no way we can do a live production. There's, this is like before vaccines. Like Mm -hmm. it just, like the theater spaces weren't ventilated in such a way that like, there was there was literally no way to do this safely. Had all our actors quarantined for several weeks and then filmed them and then broadcast a film of it. But if we're going to film it anyway, like we might as well just keep people safe and stay, you know, keep them in their homes is uh, what we did. And so we, with designers and, uh, you know, a stage management team uh, ended up basically creating a film of the play, but like one that was, that used Zoom boxes, but was designed in such a way and and uh, staged in such a way to like, sort of constantly be presenting the illusion that we were sharing a space or that the characters were sharing space. So they would like pass papers back and forth between each other. And uh, there, there were like moments of like intimacy that were like choreographed by an intimacy director that like that one, I thought that was such a brilliant solution. Uh, one uh, actor had like a tie just off screen um, that he would grab as the other actor sort of used his uh, like off stage, off screen hand to grab his own tie and pull it forward. Mm-hmm. So like these ties were getting pulled from both frames at the same time, and uh, like you know they they pulled each other off screen and like had a, a moment of intimacy that we didn't see but that like was implied. Anyway, all of this just to say I learned from this production a lot about how to make a zoom play, which is a kind of play I hope we never have to make again. Um, <laughs> I think Sarah and, and our designers and our actors were so brilliant. It was such an incredible, incredible team. And I'm, I'm like, I could not be more grateful. And I did learn so much about, but uh, I also learned that like the rhythm of this play and of this dialogue is really meant to be experienced live in a room. And that it's really hard to replicate that on Zoom. As a result, I learned less about the moment to moment beats of the play and more about sort of like what I was exploring thematically. I don't think I could talk about the play the way that I have been, uh, which is not even like particularly eloquent. But like I am usually, if you ask me about my own plays, I am just I turn into like a babbling child. I just it, nothing comes out at all, and and I I have at least formed two to three sentences with periods in in this time so far. So I, I think that's and I think that's really a credit to that that workshop production. It. I think if I were ever to do something like that again, I would write something specifically for that form that wasn't trying to like emulate theater in the only way we could, but was that, you know, but that was like being its own weird Zoom thing. Um, I think of like Eliza Bent had um, uh, an amazing play called Karen I Said that she performed over Zoom that was like so beautifully for that that format. And um, I I think that like those works are like what I'm going to remember about the Zoom era. Um, which, I mean, we're on Zoom right now. We're still, we're not out of yeah. the Zoom era. COVID, in in fact, the pandemic rages on. Uh, however, we can sometimes gather and, uh, and, you know, wear our masks in theaters and, and see a live play once in a while. So I both learned a lot about the play. And then I also feel like in some ways I, you know, I'm still waiting to like be back in the room with this play.
0: Yeah. I, I wonder, I feel, I get the impression sometimes with, I think there are different kinds of playwrights. There are some playwrights who just kind of like write their play and then they send it out and they just like don't touch it anymore. And I think there are other Mm. people that would love to just like are always invested in it because they're always curious to see where it goes. Right. Like they're always want to see, well, who's who's interpreting it now and how is it going to change? And so like,
1: what can I learn from that? Because I I always learn like anytime a new actor takes on a character of mine, I learn something new about the character. And sometimes not in, like, depending on where the play is at in its, you know, in its development cycle, which this play is both old and and in some ways, like, you know, uh, early in development. You know, I feel like I could learn so much from watching actors inhabit these roles that might impact the writing in, in ways that might, you know, deepen their journeys or, like, even just deepen the comedy. Um, I think, like, being in the room to rewrite a comedy is really essential. Um, mm-hmm. I was not able to be in New York for the rehearsals of this like musical comedy. And I, um I regret that. Cause as soon as I heard some jokes and like with an audience with like live actors, uh, I was like, Oh, I know exactly how that needs to be rephrased to work. And uh, I won't get to till the next production. Um, right.
0: Just to go through that process of working in like a rehearsal room. is mm-hmm. just, that's like, that's such a, like a, it's a privilege almost like, yeah. Especially because it's kind of like the beautiful part about theater is where you have all these people getting together who are like agreeing that, okay, we're going to focus on this idea for a hot second. Right. Which I think is so like, I'm always grateful when people let me do that. Like, let me, like they don't have to do that.
1: No. I mean, when I think about just as like the thousands of collective hours that people that actors and directors and designers and dramaturgs, Uh, and stage managers and all sorts of folks have put into my work is mind-boggling it is such an incredible gift like and and it is this is one of the most like time intensive forms of or like as a form of writing playwriting is one of the ones that requires the most other people the most amount of time and energy and effort to make it happen and to make it the thing that it's supposed to be and uh yeah no it's that's an incredible gift and I always like I can't imagine not wanting to be there for almost every part of that process. Sometimes you get like three weeks into staging and like, you know, they're just.
0: So when you're actually going about writing, what sort of like process do you have? If you have any, because there's plenty of writers who I've talked to that are like, yeah, I don't really have a like a process at all. Um.
1: So I, my, <laughs> this is a terrible joke and you can take this out if this is inappropriate, <laughs> but um, I, my latest joke about writing has been Uh, that writing is like doing Molly. I absolutely love it, but I can only do it four times a year. Um, So, and I I feel like lately I've just been writing in sprints. I just like, um, I will, you know, write for four days straight in just sort of like a a manic episode and like write an entire play in that period or, you know, almost an entire play in that period. I also sometimes will write, uh, you know, 30 pages and rewrite them and rewrite them and rewrite them over the course of six months. In general, I would say though, my process is to like think about an idea and think about characters and do research into a world for six to twelve months, and just like let an idea gestate, and then try to write the first draft of it pretty quickly as soon as the play's shape comes into mind. And uh, I think I usually tend to know the shape before I write the play. And uh, again, once that shape is there, I like want to f- fill out a skeleton and you know make sure that I have something that is a first draft that happens really quickly. And then I think that tends to happen really quickly. And then uh, and then it's just like a, a matter of like rewriting over a period of weeks and months, which usually involves hearing the play aloud with actors, usually involves sitting on it for a month or two, putting it back in a drawer, pulling it back out and rereading it and being like, wait, I wrote that. I don't remember that part. And Like <laughs> what's, what's going on there? And like, oh, like you were really obsessed with like grapefruit at this period of your life, Charlie, um, whatever it is. And I think the rewriting process is the part that always is like, the hardest and longest and scariest and also, like, weirdly has the least, is the one that I know the least about. Like, it feels like generative writing should be the one that is the most mysterious. And it is in so many ways more mysterious. But I sort of know that I just need to, like, chew on something for a real long time and then, like, write it before I think about it too much. I at least know that much. (laughs) Um, it's, It's the plays that I haven't finished are the ones that I just, like, really took my time on and never set a deadline where I was like, uh, or they became other plays. Um, mm-hmm. Effective, actually, there were 20 or 30 pages of a, of another very similar, like, angry office capitalism play called Idiot Boat. I looked back at it and it was, it was interested in totally different things stylistically, but like, and it became effective. But like, the reason I didn't write it was just like, I took too long to write it. Like, I just, um,
0: by the time I like figured out what it was, I wasn't interested in it anymore. I mean, I think you touched on, right, like, this fact that you need to sort of like let it sit, which I think is a pretty common uh, trait among playwrights Mm -hmm. is this idea that you sit with an idea. It's not saying that you're not doing writing. Like some people will do Mm -hmm. a little bit of writing here and there for an idea. Some people don't do any and then they do it all in one go like you were talking about. Um, But it's a sort of idea that you just need to be like, have this idea be present. And it will be because it'll bother you, right? Because you'll be thinking about it. and then you develop that over time and then you go, okay, I think I'm finally ready to put some words down that are like a script. And so I don't, I don't think that's that uncommon. I like from what I, from talking to people or uh, the playwrights that I talk to are writing plays that I like, the plays that I like are written <laughs> in that way. So maybe it might just be a sample size thing. No, there might
1: be, right. I'm sure there are like right everyday playwrights who are like churning out really interesting and exciting work. Um, I just, I am not, I don't subscribe to the write everyday theory. Well, I also, one of my professors, and this is, I think just like a summation of all of what we were just saying, both of us, uh, is typing is the last part of writing. Um, mm-hmm. I, she said that to me once, I think about it all the time, and uh, it is. it has been very useful to me when I like am inclined to beat myself up for not, you know, uh, for not being a right everyday kind of writer. Um, And it's because, of course, like, yeah, my plays are present with me every day. The ones that I think about every day, I think about every day, like while they're while they're in my brain until like they pass a few years later.
0: Well, it's weird to think about the right everyday mentality, talking about your play and sort of like the the work style and work (laughs) like life balance. Yeah, it's like once you once you start teaching or once you start turning your art form into a job like, yes, that works for some people. But also sometimes it can make you sort of loathe having to do it, and I don't think when you're when you're loathing the process that it produces any sort of good work. And so if you're frustrated with what you're doing, sometimes you just need to be like, "I'm done. Like I'll take a break."
1: Yeah, I'm realizing as you said that I was like, "Oh, effective was it's a play that is very much about." I feel like the, one of the emotional cores of that it came from that I wouldn't have been able to recognize at the time, but like that I'm now seeing years later is like, I was very. I had turned uh, playwriting into a, its own rat race. Uh, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I have to write two plays a year and I have to submit to these things and I have to make sure that I'm getting a reading of this every like six months or what." It is, I think, useful to have like things that are like setting deadlines, keeping you moving forward, just keeping you invested in your art making. What it was was that I started to care about playwriting as a career more than playwriting as an art form. Mm-hmm. And uh, that leads to uh, despair, I think, and also bad art. Um, but for me, mostly despair. Um, is where where it led me with this play. I'm realizing that's, yeah, and probably not surprising just given the the general tone of the play. But
0: well, and I think that, and then I think that feeds into when you have the final like the the monologue at the end, where it's from the perspective of, of a writer. And then you can sort of, it's not like, it's not overtly connected. Well, and especially because you have characters that talk about how they genuinely enjoy, The field that they're in like the work that they're doing but like the world like the job that they have makes them sort of hate it at the same time and so i think we do that to ourselves sometimes
1: absolutely it's um astonishing our ability to kill our own dreams (laughs) is a crazy sentence (laughs) that just came out of my mouth and and what a shame um and i i I guess but there's always the ability to recapture that um i think like that that love of the thing i i think once i accepted that like I may never have a play at Playwrights Horizons, but, like, I can always get my work out to people who will invest in it in some way, and, like, that is a huge gift in and of itself, and the fact that I have that is, like, something to be grateful for. Like, sort of making that paradigm shift is, like, uh, very freeing. It's deeply freeing, I think.
0: And Um, I it's, it's like, I have a, like my own, my only like personal superstition is that I only get things I want when I stop wanting them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever experienced that where it's like, yeah, when you're trying really hard to do something uh, and then the moment you go, okay, well, I guess I'm still going to go for it, but I'm sort of resigned to the fact that it's not going to happen. That's, <laughs> that's when yep. it starts to turn around. And I think it's, I think it's because once you're in that moment, you're sort of free to, you're not inhibiting yourself anymore because you're not trying so hard. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: Right. And, and, and I think in, because you're being driven by like, this is a little like cognitive behavioral nonsense, but like, I mean, not nonsense. I very much buy into it. Um, but like, (laughs) I think that's being driven by values rather than by like goals or like looking for like the, the, you know, uh, prize at the end of the tunnel or like the, the, um, treasure chest at the end of the uh rainbow i'm irish i'm allowed to use that terrible (laughs) image reaching for that in that one specific thing always means that as soon as you get that thing then like then what what do you have like what are you going for what's driving you whereas like if you were driven by the things that matter to you and by your values that are sort of like that are not uh going to that have no end there is no end point in in the same way that i think there is no end point to like you know trying to like make a better world there's just like we're never going to achieve the perfect like utopia and Mm -hmm. um that doesn't mean not to strive for it um wow I really that's so wild to think about it four years ago if you had asked me like what I really wanted as a playwright I would have said like yeah like a production at Soho Rep or whatever it was Mm -hmm. and like I truly like I mean I don't want to say that that wouldn't matter to me now or that I don't like still want that in some way but like wow, that's like truly not driving me anymore. And it is. that's why this play feels so distant from me, I think. I feel very like removed (laughs) from this play in some ways. It feels like a little bit like reading a play from another lifetime, um, revisiting this play. Uh, Even as it, yeah, again, like feels like it's about Elon Musk. Um, (laughs) I,
0: I think that's the, it's like, that's what I, well, I think art in general does that a lot where like you're capturing a specific moment in your life Right. And even though you're developing over it over a long period of time, it's still a very like isolated. Like this is your personality at this moment, whereas like yeah. my person, like your personality changes from year to year. Like you're never the same person. Uh, and so I think that's I I would say that feels like it's pretty common, too. But then I guess I bet there's plenty of playwrights that just like are have been super consistent. Right. And this is just they like they're very familiar with their work. But I mean, I've, I have I'm i gen- like I'm generally a young artist. I even look back at Mm. things I wrote two years ago and I go, what was I doing here? Like, what is this? When you can sometimes like understand,
1: I understand like what was troubling me at points in my life by reading my plays years later. I was (laughs) like, oh, that's when I finally dealt with like that religious crisis. And that's sort of when I was really dealing with like, I mean, suicidal ideation comes up in this play, but like I wrote a play that was like very much about that. And it was like, oh, I didn't realize the way that that was under the surface of everything at that period of my life, were like, yeah, I, I, and it, it always makes me excited to look back on the things that I'm like, I right now that I'm like, I don't understand what's going on here. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then actually figure it out years later. Um, I, I've been writing a lot of like, you know, relationship anxiety, like growing into, you know, the middle of a relationship plays recently. So I don't know what that's about. Um, you know, who's to say?
0: Yeah. I don't, it's such a, and I think it's because it's a, it is a collaborative thing. So you never really know Mm. what something is until you get it in front of someone else. Like, I don't know. I don't really know what it's like for writing literature or like writing like a film script or something like that. But I, I just always get the feeling with theater. I never know what a work is until actually people are together and processing it in a communal way. And so I don't think it really reveals itself until it's right there. And maybe that's, that's getting a little too mystical about it, but- um, Not at all. I do feel I, like that's the case.
1: I, if you had asked me at the beginning of the process what I thought I was writing about it, I would be like, oh, like age gap relationships and like Gen Z, tender, queer, you know, internet politics. Um, and then I sort of did not realize until I was watching it, as you said, with an audience, having this communal experience that I was like, this is a play about my deep seated fear that I am evil and like that I am capable of great evil. And like, it is about like being scared of that. And like, it is really, it was that simple and it was a much simpler play, I guess, in many ways than I thought it was, but I had to have the community. So I, I, thank, I thank the community for coming together to give me the therapy I so desperately needed, but also, <laughs> but also, no, I, I mean, I, to, to understand, I think that like that kind of understanding is a thing that we do do together. And like, I, I um, love theater as a, a space for that. I think it's a really important space for that. Um, it's one of the only like collective fantasy spaces we really have uh, in our culture right now. Uh, it's one of the mm-hmm. only spaces where we go to gather and sort of collectively imagine.
0: Um, well, especially because you're in a space with people and the audience is always kind of... It's like what sort of separates it from film. Like, right? Film, you get to go into a dark room. Mm-hmm. Everybody's everybody's in the dark. You're all watching the same thing. So it's collective still, but it's still not quite the same because yeah, in theater, you're always aware that there are other people watching with you and you're always sort of taking that into account and i think i i don't i mean especially at this point i don't think we can ever escape i don't think i I think the fourth wall is gone like we can't we can't ever (laughs) build it again because now people are constantly aware of it
1: and and i and you know for for the better because like it was never really you know like (laughs) we've always the point has always been that we like are sharing energy with the actors like whether or not i mean like You talk about like sharing air or sharing breath, which now gives me like COVID anxiety, but like (laughs) we sharing energy is that's the, and that for me also speaks to the difference between film that you were talking about, which is like the actors aren't going to, nothing about the film will change. Even if the audience has a big reaction to it, the play changes when an audience reacts to it. Mm -hmm. Um, The text, I mean, again, the text does not literally change, but like the, the text in a sort of like grand, you know, whatever, um, uh, interpretive sense like does does change i think that like what we are literally seeing changes as a result of like who is in the room and of people experiencing it together anyway i i'm always there to get mystical about theater um it's <laughs> my bread and butter so i
0: i me too i totally agree that's uh anytime you can wax eloquent about your art form and whatever it is i think is always a good time because it makes you feel uh like what you're doing is is has some significance um, yes when which a lot is of time- important
1: when you work in the American theater <laughs> and it's very easy to you know sort of not feel that significance I and you know who's to say why
0: uh all right so sort of winding this down yes. closing things out uh I'm just sort of curious I know you gave me a long list and I really appreciate that uh because I'm always looking for a new place to read. If there's specifically like a work that you want to recommend to people that really inspired you, or you think that's like a really, really just great play that people should read.
1: Yeah. I mean, the play that I've been telling people they like need to read from, you know, every day for the last like four or five years since I saw it was uh, Jackie Sibyl's Jury's play Fairview. Oh, um, I think is so stunning. It is such an incredible theatrical like trap Um, it just like operates, uh, the mechanics of it are so perfect and so brilliant. The writing is like so sharp and like, so, uh, just (laughs) effective. It's, um, (laughs) and, uh, and the turns it takes are like so thrilling and such a gut punch. I, uh, yeah, I, I think that that play is like the essential reading play of the last five years. And then, uh, yeah, I, again, like think of lots of plays that like are important to me, but um, the Tomb of King taught by Olivia Dufault, I always have to throw out my, when I teach uh, my students always love that play. Mm -hmm. Um, And I cannot stop thinking about the play. I thought I would die, but I didn't buy I'm almost blanked on your name, Bailey. I'm so sorry. By Bailey Williams, uh, who just had a play events go up in New York that I'm so jealous I couldn't see. But um, that play, it just has haunted me. If there's any way that you can get your hands on a copy of the script, I think it might be a new play exchange, but just hunt it down. It is, I like plays that punch you in the gut,
0: I think is yeah. what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> well, that, uh, when I, I so I read Fairview, I didn't know anything about the script. I, I never, yes. I haven't gotten to see it, but I was like, okay, this first act is pretty, standard like it's a fine mm-hmm. play it's good and then I got to act two and I was like what what are we doing and so yeah. I highly suggest if anyone wants to go read Fairview just read it it's great like you have to just like let it happen because that reveal for me was really intense and I was just reading it yeah. I was like really we're gonna do okay all right we're doing this yeah now. and sitting it was sitting in the theater I just like yeah <laughs> it was like I mean it's just
1: sort of like everyone like what is I mean, yeah. Which I love I love disorientation in the theater I love that it's like a safe space where I get to be disoriented.
0: Fairview is also like is what I found for a recent trend where like playwrights of color not giving a shit anymore Mm -hmm. and so they're like, no, this is the reality. Like they're like this is what we deal with and you have to deal with it too. And it's no longer like, oh, but we're going to have a good character. Who's like a red- <laughs> like a redemptive white character. It's like, no, there are no more of those characters left. We've tried that and it didn't work. So that's yeah. also along those lines too. And it's so good. Just real quick, finishing up with you. Uh, where can people find your work if they're looking for it?
1: Uh, yeah. Um, uh, A lot of my plays are up on new play exchange. Uh, Charlie O'Leary um, I have a website, which is the most <laughs> embarrassing sentence any one person can utter, but I have a website. Uh, it's www.charlieholeary.com um, with no apostrophe. Um, the apostrophe is sort of the bane of my existence. My partner has a um, an accent in his last name. And so I was like, if we ever like have kids and have to like have a hyphen, they're going to like have a hyphenated apostrophe accented last name, it's going to be really fun for them to fill out forms and, and make websites. CharlieHoleary.com and you play exchange are the best places to find me. I'm also I am on Twitter at the moment and we'll see if that lasts for more than five seconds longer, uh, <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, I'm on Twitter as the Bath Years and, and Instagram as well, and uh, and also TikTok because I'm Gen Z at heart.
0: Well, perfect. And are you working on any projects right now that people might want to expect or anything that you can share? That is, yeah.
1: Um, so I'll have a um production of Anaxim's story, which is the musical that just went up. Um. Uh, this past month in New York. uh, It's having another production at CAP 21 in New York, the the Musical Theater Conservatory. uh, And that'll go up the first week into March. Um, I have a reading of a play called Ridgeway, which is uh, sort of a ghost story about Um, the question of whether or not my hometown was a was a sundown town uh, and um, a that play is having a reading at alliance theater uh, as part of the uh, it was a candada competition finalist this year Um, so it'll have that reading also at the beginning of march i believe that's the second week of march Um, and then uh, i'll have a reading of my new play the doctors with uh, the road theater company in los angeles Uh, and that's a play about uh, pain and nostalgia and the way that we remember things really differently uh it's also just I I wanted to try writing a dinner party play I wanted to write like a play <laughs> where four characters sit in a room and like have arguments to see if maybe that would be <laughs> producible um so it's so it's sort of that and then and then weird stuff starts happening and you know like the, the furniture doesn't work right and, and and it does my usual nonsense so yeah I I'm really excited about all those plays and um and I'm also, I have in the hopper, a play about Super Smash Brothers and 4chan
0: that's like oh a my history God. play
1: about the rise of the alt-right.
0: That's amazing. Well, the, Charlie, this has been fantastic. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, I really hope people check out your work because I think it deserves more eyes. So um... thank you
1: so much. And thank you for having me. This was such a fun conversation. I really appreciate it
0: thank you so much for listening. All our music was written, performed, and recorded by Devin Wessels. Our graphic design is done by Lucas Minarchik. And next time we're going to be talking with April Amara about her play, Title Pending. And be sure to support your local theater. They're doing great work. See you next time.